invite you to turn to Second Peter chapter 2, verse 18. This is part two of what we started last week, talking about the truth about false teachers, which is kind of an ironic statement to make. So we're going to look at the five final verses of chapter 2, which is Peter's continued warning about them. And not just, not just what they say, but the effect that what they say has, has on the people and the culture around them. He's gone into a lot of detail to describe what they believe so far, uh, their motive for spreading falsehoods and the error in which they live their lives. And look back at verse 17. He calls them waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. Now that's a concept we're going to hit on a little bit later again. This just is pretty obvious. They look good. Like you think that you're going to get relief from what they can provide you. But in the end, it's they're waterless springs. It's like you go to get relief with the drinks of water and you get fistfuls of sand. It's not what you thought it would be. It's not what they're advertising that it is. So I think this really is one of the greatest litmus tests for spotting a false teacher. Does what they're saying give life to people around them? Is it truth? Does it bring life to the people that hear it? Are the people who listen to them encouraged to fear God, to, to hold scriptures as authority? Do they love one another? Do they follow Jesus? Or does this person's teaching bring guilt, sorrow, fear of man, bondage? Because when we're seeking after the things of this world, those are the results that we get. Fear of man, bondage, as Peter will go on to say. So if it's all about the money, as many false teachers today claim, if it's all about the money, and you don't have any money, something's wrong. right? Either God doesn't love you, they say, or your faith isn't strong enough. Both of those problems perpetuate the indwelling issue that you and I already have. We're too focused on ourselves. We've got a me problem Is it possible for God to use pain in your life? Is it possible for God to use our limitations for his glory? Could it be that some Christians will give up their very lives for the advancement of the gospel? I sure hope that's the case, or else all of the disciples really misunderstood what Jesus was saying. The early church got it all wrong if that's not true. Can you imagine, I was thinking about this this week, can you imagine one of the martyr, a martyr, a person, that's a person who died because of their belief in Jesus. Many of them faced with the, the, the situation of saying, either denounce your faith or die, and they choose death. Can you imagine one of those people flipping on the television to a prosperity gospel preacher today? Just seriously, these guys that are saying, you're going to be healthy and wealthy. I read a story of someone who was going to go minister, a pastor who was going to go minister to someone in another country. I think it was Guatemala. And he he called them and said, I can't make it today. I, I'm sick. I have a fever and I don't want to spread it. And they said, a man of God is sick? Because it doesn't jive. Can you imagine a martyr hearing a prosperity gospel preacher today? I can only imagine what they would say. I think Peter is already telling us some things. He's already speaking to that sort of situation. 
The prosperity gospel is just based on a lie that you can get everything you want in this life when you add God to it. But the true gospel is very different. The true gospel says that Christ alone saves you. Christ alone is giving you eternal life. He saves you from eternal punishment if you turn from your sin by faith and follow God. I made this statement last week. I said, what you believe about God directs your life. If it's true, and I think that that statement is true, then one of the greatest pursuits of every Christian should be to understand who God is better. So we have knowledge of God and who he is through what? The revelation of himself in his word, specifically through Jesus Christ himself. Now remember, if you look back at First uh, Peter or not First Peter, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20, we don't read our own thoughts and ideas into the text here. This is not my opinion of what these verses say. On the other hand, we are supposed to, as Christians, let the Bible determine how we live. We don't try to squeeze what we want into the text. We try to let the Bible speak into our life and change us. And this is why it's so important to keep verses in context and to consult the whole counsel of God when we're trying to understand difficult passages and concepts and doctrines. If we're going to hold firmly to the truth as Christians, we have to be able to tell truth from lies. So continue studying, brothers and sisters. Those of you listening today, continue learning. Continue evaluating everything you hear and see through the lens of Scripture because there are those who Peter's getting ready to say speak foolishness really loudly. In fact, that's where he picks up in chapter 2, verse 18. Let's read it together through the end of the chapter and have a word of prayer. Verse 18, For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb said has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Let's pray. Lord, we're, that last verse identifies a couple of things that none of us want to be. None of us want to be equated with a dog or a pig. We don't want to know the truth, to have an understanding of the gospel, to hear it, to understand some of it, and then turn away. Lord, I pray that you would save us from that. Every person who's listening this morning, Lord, I pray that you would grant them faith and repentance. Lord, and I know that's a work of the Spirit, and so I pray that your work would be done through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you look at verse 18, uh, if you've got a King James Bible, it the phrase says here, they speak great swelling words of vanity. So not only does the lifestyle of a false teacher not bring life, but their words also fail to do it. 
As Peter's already said, they are waterless springs. They are mists blown about. Their words are full of emptiness. And I kind of thought at first Peter was like using a play on words, like they're bulging with emptiness. Like That's kind of a weird thing to think about. But I think it's even worse than that, to be honest. I, th- I think Peter is, is saying here that they are bulging with depravity. That's what that word vanity can mean. Depravity. They're swollen with it and they're speaking it and their words are just nonsense. They're folly. They're foolishness. What they say is silly, but it sounds good to people, as we already said, who have that me problem. Right? If, if you're stuck on yourself and you're, you want your life to be better and your bank account to be full and your body to be without pain, well, then you're going to be enticed by some of these words that are being spoken because you're still focused on you. What they say is nonsense, but it sounds good. So the allure of false teachers isn't the truth that they're sharing, but what might be gained by exploiting the truth. Because that's what they do. They appeal to that, that natural desire in men and women to think about me. And they exploit the truth. Think about John chapter 6. If you remember that story uh, in chapter 5, he had just, or earlier in chapter 6, I think, he had just fed the, the 5,000 plus, multiplied loaves and fishes, an incredible display of his power, of his divinity. And he leaves, gets on a boat, travels away, and people are trying to find him. Even greater crowds are trying to find him. They don't find him where they thought he'd be. When they finally find him, they say, what are you doing here? We thought you were over here. And he says, look, you guys weren't following me for me. You were following me because you ate your fill and you wanted more bread. That's literally what he says. He says, you're seeking me, John chapter 6, verse 26, because you ate your fill of the loaves. He knew it. That was their motivation. Later in that chapter, verse 66, he says, John says that after many of, after this, where he explains that he is the bread of life, and you have to partake of him to have real life. John says that after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Because Jesus knew what they were after. They didn't really want Jesus. They wanted the stuff they could get from him. As the gospel spread among the Gentiles, initially they had to overcome Jewish legalism, which is what Paul really addressed in a lot of his letters. That's why a lot of Romans is talking about freedom in Christ, freedom from slavery to sin. Now we're free to live by the Spirit. But as the gospel kind of permeated more deeply into Gentile culture, Peter says that guarding against these sensual passions of the flesh was a challenge. That was difficult. And I think we could look at just about every culture and era, specifically in our culture today, and say that's probably the same. Like it is a challenge to fight against the passions of the flesh. Because for, for Peter's audience, the Gentiles, what they saw all around them was these spiritual people who infused some truth, some gospel message with idolatry and sexual immorality. And so in order to justify the lusts of the flesh, these false teachers compromised the gospel truth to accommodate their culture around them and their own sinful desires. Or kids, in terms of the board, they wanted it to be 3 and 15 sixteenths 
so that it, or four so that it was easier than three and fifteen sixteens. They wanted to change it to make it easier. They would reinterpret the apostles' teachings to maintain their sinful lifestyle, and in doing so, Peter's getting ready to say they bring a bunch of people with them because that kind of message is appealing to people who have a me problem. Verses 10 and 19 of chapter 2 here, they reveal their claim that freedom in Christ allowed them to follow the corrupt desires of the flesh. They were saying, we're free in Christ. Do what we want. Chapter 3, verse 3 says that they're going to scoff. These people will scoff about Jesus' second coming in order to follow their own evil desires. So they lure people in with the very thing that has taken them captive The lusts of the flesh. So think about this. What sounds more appealing? If you were going to go and share the gospel or a message specifically, if you were going to go and share a message to people who'd never heard of Jesus, what sounds more appealing? Deny yourself or have everything you want. Come on, right? And this is, this is what false teachers appeal to. You can have it all in this life. Just Follow God and send me some money along the way. Right? You can do, sure, you can do that. We'll make this easy. And they pervert the gospel. When the true message is take up your cross daily. Die to yourself. Not live for yourself. Here's the problem with this. Especially in a church. You can get a crowd if you really want. And, and we've seen evidence of churches doing this for years now. I've seen churches give away cars, guns, cardinals tickets, grocery cards, all kinds of different things for people to come to church. You can get a crowd if you really want to. You can get results and people through the door, but are these the results that we really are looking for? Look at verse 19. Verse 19 tells us that the, that that even those who've heard the truth and appear to have believed it can still be drawn away by the attractive message of living however they want and still being right with God. These teachers, they promise freedom, but guys, freedom can never be found in the flesh, only in Christ. True freedom isn't found in what Jesus can give us, but in Jesus himself. And we have to know the difference. We have to learn and understand the difference. When we seek freedom in the wrong way, verse 20, Peter says that we become slaves of corruption, just like the false teachers already are. Paul taught and wrote a lot about Christian freedom, especially in the book of Romans. And I think he knew it would be abused by people like this. He warns in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, period. You were called to freedom. But only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through service, but through love, rather, serve one another. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, And do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. It's likely that these false teachers read a passage like that and said, Yeah, you're not under the law anymore. Your body is yours to do what you want with. Does that sound familiar at all? You're not under the law. 
You're free. Do whatever you want. Well, certainly they, they stop short of some of other, some other of Paul's teachings in the book of Romans. Specifically there where he said, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. I think this is the kind of thing that Peter talks about. If you look over at chapter three, verse 16, he says, he's talking about Paul's writings. And he says, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. This is the kind of thing that Peter's talking about here. These false teachers were teaching unstable souls. That's the phrase he uses in verse 14 of chapter 2. He was, he was teaching unstable souls how to use the letters of Paul to justify their own freedom. In First Peter chapter 2, verse 16, Peter's already spoken about this. Here's what he says. He says, live as people who are free. Yes, freedom in Christ. He says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And so the unfortunate thing about all of this is that the call to freedom in Christ is right and good. It's true. Freedom in Christ is really at the heart of the gospel message, actually. But it's not a call to give free reign to the passions of the flesh, verse 18 says. It's not for that. Paul says in Romans 8, 13, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. This is the formula. It's freedom in Christ. Yes, absolutely, 100%. But not to stay focused on me. To serve, to love one another, to die to self. And therefore live to Christ and live to righteousness. These false teachers, they promise freedom. What does Peter say next? He says that they are overcome with corruption and have become a slave to it. He says whatever overcomes a person to that he is enslaved. The lure of false teachers' freedom is that they say you're free to do what you want, but in reality, everybody bows to something. Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 6. You have a master, and you can apply this to alcohol, to sexual immorality, to drug abuse, to worldliness and wealth, to popularity and status, really any sin can enslave you because it easily entangles us and soon becomes our master. You're either a servant of Jesus or you continue to serve the enemy in sin. Look at verse 20. I think this is interesting. Peter says that you're first entangled and then overcome. I think what we need to understand from this is that a a person doesn't become a slave to materialism overnight like that. It's a series of browsing online, watching the home shopping network, not being content with what you have. It's, it's those things that build up to now all of a sudden you're overcome by it. You're slave to it. I had a friend in college who lived with his grandma and we went and visited and stayed over there one night and she had one of those old big screen TVs, the one that weigh a million pounds, no one wants anymore. And that thing had on the side of the screen, it had a burn in of the home shopping network. When it was off, you could, when it was on a black screen, you could see 
the sidebar of the home shopping network. It was on all the time and she had trinkets galore. It didn't happen overnight. She didn't get 2,000 packages from UPS on a Monday morning. It happened over years of being dissatisfied and giving in and doing these little things. A person doesn't become a slave to alcohol overnight either. You start with just a drink. You then maybe you drink to cope with what's going on in your life. And then before you know it, it affects everything you do. Every person that you're close to, it affects. These things don't just happen. First, you're entangled by it. And then you're overcome by it. And some versions say enslaved. That's not freedom in Christ. See, these false teachers, they say they're teaching freedom, that you are free in Christ. But in reality, they're selling slavery. I would just encourage you. If you recognize, perhaps as we go on this morning, perhaps as you pray today and this week, if you recognize that you've become entangled in some kind of sin, whether it's materialism or sexual immorality or alcohol or drug abuse or any of those things or more, don't wait. Don't say, I can do this. I can beat this on my own. Get help. Call. Let us help you walk through Scripture to show you that there is real freedom in Christ, but it's not in doing whatever you want. <laughs> it's in doing what God would want for you to do. In the end of verse 20 uh, and then 21 and 22, Peter says that to know the truth and be changed by the truth is to endure. It's to keep going. We hit on this several weeks back when I shared the story of the husband and wife who were lost at sea I said, just keep swimming. Swim hard. Eternity depends on it. If you're changed by the truth, you will endure. The expectation here is that a Christian will endure to the end. They've been made new. Second Corinthians 5.17, new creatures, Paul says there. On the contrary, to know the truth and to not endure, Peter says at the end here, is like to be a dog who returns to his vomit, or a pig after being washed who goes back to the mud pit. So Peter says that knowing the truth and turning away from it is actually worse than from the start. And I think this is this kind of struck me this week, and I had to do a lot of study to understand. I, but this isn't an unusual kind of a thing that Peter says. If you remember in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verse 12, people are judged, it says, according to what was written in the book of life. Let me read that for you. This is John speaking. He says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Now, I think overall the point of that is, have they trusted in Christ? Or are they still relying on their own efforts to be saved? but according to what they had done. In Matthew 11, Jesus gives maybe a clearer example of what Peter is getting at here. He's talking to unrepentant cities. And he points out Sodom and Gomorrah to some of these. And he, he, he says, It will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon and Sodom than for you. He's talking to the people of these cities who refused to believe. Great works had been done there. And he says, if these things had been done in Sodom, they would have believed. 
It's going to be worse for you. He says, it'll be more bearable for them than for you, he says. So I think what he's getting at is that they had the full revelation of God in Jesus, staring them in the face, doing miracles, teaching truth, and they still refused to believe. And so I think there's a principle here in that it seems as though punishment in eternity could be linked to the amount of person, or I'm sorry, the amount of light or truth a person rejects. Peter is saying it would have been better if they had not known the way of righteousness at all than to know it and turn their backs on it. So for the person who claims to know and love God but is not truly believed like false teachers, it's going to be worse for them if they'd never heard of him at all. The last state, Peter says, has become worse for them than the first. Have you ever bought something from like... uh Facebook Marketplace, or the thing before that was Craigslist. That's back in the day. What did we do before that? Classifieds in the paper, right? You got something to sell, you're, you put it there. If you, have you ever bought anything from like a Facebook Marketplace thing? You, you can see the pictures, and oftentimes they have lots of pictures. But when you go in person to see the item, sometimes it's different than what it looked like in the pictures, right? You know what I'm saying? It's kind of like some car dealerships. They take, or maybe even some home sales, they take really flattering pictures, but when you get there, you're like, eh, this isn't quite what I expected. There's a, there's a term that we use, anybody know what I'm talking about? When to say this is what you're going to get, but then when you get there, you actually get something else? The bait and switch, right? That's the bait and switch. One thing is promised, but something else is delivered. That's what Peter said false teachers are like. They're like the rain cloud who promises rain. We get our hopes up and we say, yes, we're going to get rain for our crops. It's going to fill the wells and the streams. And then the wind blows it away and we're heartbroken. It's like that waterless spring where we're, we're dying of thirst and we crawl up to it only to get fistfuls of sand that can't give life. It's the bait and switch. It's actually worse to have your hope built up, I'm going to get relief, I'm going to be saved from this, and then have no relief. It's actually worse than if you hadn't had hope in the beginning. In verse 20, the end of 20 and 21, Peter says that if a person hears the gospel and he knows about Jesus, this information might keep them from sinning in some ways. Like, he says that they might escape the defilements of the world, that's a good thing. Knowing the difference between right and wrong can help. A person make good choices to some degree. It can restrain you from a measure of sin, but the truth is that knowing the truth doesn't save you. You have to believe it. You have to put your faith in it. You must believe the truth and not just know the truth. So imagine the disappointment of a person who thinks they're delivered from sin and death only to discover that in the end, it's not true. Now it's, they're worse off than when they started. So based on the context here, if we, as I said before, we need to make sure we're reading things in context. I do still think that Peter is talking about false teachers here, but I do think that it also applies to people who follow them. They are led astray. They are lured by these things. The people that have, have been exposed to a lot of truth, like the false teachers, but sometimes they turn their backs on it. 
and pursue their own lustful desires. Look at verse 15. It says that they knew the right way, but have forsaken it. Look at verse 21. He says that they knew the way of righteousness, but have turned their back from the holy commandment delivered to them. They heard the truth. They knew the truth. And they still rejected it. They're going to be judged accordingly. We already saw, Peter says, God knows what to do with the righteous. He knows how to save the righteous and he knows how to keep the sinful under judgment until the end. And he's just in doing that. These people will be judged accordingly. We know this about them because of verse 22. Not flattering descriptions. They're like a dog who returns to their vomit. Or a pig that gets washed and immediately returns to the mud pit. I don't have to give any more examples than that. You know what he's getting at here. Notice that Peter doesn't mention sheep here. Because Jesus uses sheep. Other New Testament authors use sheep. Even Old Testament authors use sheep as an analogy for God's people. God, through Jesus, calls. The good shepherd calls to the sheep. And what does he say? They know his voice. And they come after him. They, the false teachers, they happily return to their gross behavior and their dirty lifestyle. Dog and vomit, pig and mud. Now true, I think what Peter is getting at here is that it's true. For a while, they give the appearance of being saved. Right? Um, they may escape from some of the worst defilements. They, they may have an appearance of salvation. But just like the seed that we talked about at VBS that falls on the rocky ground, the seed that rock falls on the thorny ground, they give the appearance of new life for a little while, but their roots aren't true. They don't go deep. They don't persevere and they don't bear fruit unto eternal life is the way Jesus puts it in Luke chapter 8. So in other words, those who leave the way of righteousness never to return simply show that their inner nature had never been changed. It's true that those with the Spirit of God genuinely dwelling in them may sin for a season. You all know this to be true. Paul knew this to be true. Romans 6, 7 especially really illustrate this. We know it's true that we may sin for a season, but brothers and sisters, if you've been truly saved, you will be delivered from the bondage of sin, the slavery to sin, because as Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says, He who began a good work in you, in these people, God's chosen ones, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God's going to complete that good work. So here's the question that I want to kind of answer as we close. If false teachers can look good and sound good to some degree, and even their lifestyle reflect a bit of godliness, or at least the appearance of salvation for a little while, how do we tell the difference? How do we know who's a false teacher and who's a right teacher? How do we know what's false doctrine and what is biblical doctrine? Think about what Peter has focused on this whole chapter. What has he been pointing to for these false teachers? Now, there's been a little bit of what they say, but for the most part, Peter's been talking about their lifestyle. He's been talking about how they live. And I asked this question at the beginning. Does what they're teaching give biblical life 
to the hearers. That's how we know. Does what they're saying change the listener to love God more or to love stuff more? Does what they say cause their listeners to believe and spread fear and guilt, condemnation and hypocrisy? That's how we tell. Evaluate the message and evaluate the messenger. And you do that for me every week, I hope. You evaluate what we're saying from this pulpit in our Sunday school classes, in our small groups, in youth group, in Awana. We evaluate what's being said, compare it to the scripture, run it through that lens, and see, is this true? Is there life here? Because we don't want to be giving out handfuls of sand to thirsty people. I don't, and I don't believe you do either as a Christian. So let's turn this on ourselves. What about you? Does what you know and believe about Jesus give you life? New life. Eternal life. Does it give life to those who you share it with? Or are you overcome by sin? Are you in slavery and bondage to it? If you are, does it bother you? If you can be in bondage to sin and it not bother you, it is a very good chance that you have not been changed by Jesus. Because the Spirit of God in a Christian will not let them maintain a consistent lifestyle of rebellion. He will discipline them. Hebrews 11, God disciplines the children that He loves, the children that He loves. So if you've heard the truth of the gospel, there's a biblical expectation placed on you. Just hearing this today, there's a biblical expectation that God has for you. It's this. Belief. Repentance, faith, and as Peter illustrates here, enduring to the end. Because we would say, and it would agree with what Peter is saying here, those who do not endure to the end are not saved. And they prove it because they do not endure. Here's the thing. The, the beauty of the gospel, the wonderful message of salvation, is that you can't endure enough and believe enough and repent hard enough for sufficiently in your own strength. That's what Jesus is for. That's where Jesus comes in because of his sacrifice, because of his perfect life and sacrificial death. He, God grants repentance to all those who believe. God gives salvation to those who love him, who he loved first By rising again, Jesus conquers death and sin and its bondage. Now we still wrestle against it in this fleshly body, but one day we will no longer. Now Hebrews tells us that Jesus sits at the right hand interceding for his people, for God's people. That's the Savior that you have if you know Jesus. Last blank to fill in this morning is this. A Christian's nature has been fundamentally changed by Jesus and he will finish what he started. And that's the comfort that I want to leave us with this morning. It's that, brothers and sisters, false teachers are out there. Maybe you're in, they're not in your circle, but you've got friends and family and they're in their circle. It doesn't take long to flip on cable TV to find Health, wealth, and prosperity gospel preachers. 
It doesn't take much traveling down our roads to find people who hold to that. They may not recognize that what they see is false. But if you do, go in love and in truth and share the message of the gospel. Because what they believe doesn't really save them. But the the true message of God's word through Jesus Christ does save. And so that's what we want to go with, that message of truth that gives life. Is what you're believing giving life today? Let's pray. Lord, you have, for every Christian, you have fundamentally changed them. Paul says, in, Paul says it this way, that they have become a new creature. The old things have passed away. New things have come. And so, Lord, that is a, that is a work that only you can do in salvation is to make us wretched sinners following the course, the pattern of this world, as we read earlier, by nature, children of wrath. That's the only way that we could ever be redeemed is by Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that our theology, our doctrine, our beliefs are biblical, not just the whims of the day, not our own personal interpretations of it. But Lord, that we are anchored to the truth. The truth has a name and his name is Jesus. And so I pray, Lord, that what we believe today is giving us life. If it's not, Lord, I pray that you would bring life to us. Come find us in the midst of our brokenness. You still do that today. And I know that you would I pray that we would cry out in response, not counting our own righteousness as anything to be lifted up, but boasting only in the righteousness of Jesus that covers our sin, that atones for our sin, satisfies your justice, maintains your holiness in the process, and saves us forever. Lord, may we go knowing the truth and sharing the truth in love. Help us to be able to spot false teaching to run from it and or speak truth to it where you call us to. Make us bold in this endeavor, Lord, for your glory and your name we pray. Amen.